We are in Revelation chapter 5 this week. Uh, this is another one of those parts of the Bible that's a little different. Um, and so if you're new here, if this is your first time watching one of these videos or listening to the podcast, um, by all means, go back and especially watch week number one. Then you can jump here. But each one of these studies picks off picks up very much where it left off last week. So um, I'm going to assume you, you've, you've already seen part one of this worship scene we're in in chapters four and five. So um, if you have any questions or are lost, uh, hit the pause button, reach out to me, and uh, I'd love to answer questions and get you caught up. Otherwise, go back and watch watch all the studies. Uh, it's, it's, I've, I've enjoyed this so far, so hopefully you, you will as well. Um, so that being said, uh, just very briefly, uh, John finished with the letters that Jesus dictated to him to send to the seven churches in western Turkey. And then he is caught up in a vision of the throne room of heaven. Um, and again, last week we talked about how to think of heaven, about how it's not just a place we go. We don't actually go there. Eventually it becomes, heaven and earth become the same thing. Heaven is really just the space God exists in because he can't exist in our space without annihilating us. Again, watch last week's if that's that's a big like, huh, for you. Um, uh, so... Yeah, uh, so he gets caught up in this vision, and he sees like this big, giant worship service of, of, of God on his throne in his throne room. That's really what we see, and that's where we're still at. We're still in this throne room of heaven. So we're going to be here for a while, till chapter 11, actually. Um, but yeah, that we're in that throne room. God is holding court. There is a worship service going on. There is a ceremony happening. And so this week, we're picking up basically the second and the third part of that ceremony. So we've had the worship service. We've praised God for just who he is and the fact that he created and that makes him worthy of praise. Um, and now we're going to get into this. So let me uh, read it and then we'll come back and break it down. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says this, I saw that there was a scroll on the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. So sitting at the right hand of God. The scroll was written on the inside and the outside and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel announcing in a loud voice, Does anybody deserve to open the scroll to undo its seals? And nobody in heaven or on the earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look at it. I burst into tears because it seemed that there was nobody who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. One of the elders, however, spoke to me. Don't cry, he said. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the victory. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders and a lamb. It was standing there as though it had been slaughtered. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. The Lamb came up and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down in front of the Lamb. They each had a harp, and they each had golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's holy people. They sing a new song, which goes like this. You are worthy to take the scroll. You are worthy to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and with your own blood you purchased a people for God. From every tribe and tongue, from every nation and people, from and made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. As I watched, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders. Their number was ten thousand times ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, and they were saying in full voice, The slaughtered lamb has now deserved to take the riches and the power, to take the wisdom, strength, and honor, to take the glory and the blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven, on the earth, 
under the earth, in the sea, and everything that is in them, saying, To the one on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen, cried the four living creatures. As for the elders, they fell down and worshipped it. So, incredibly powerful stuff. Like the reverence and just what we just read, it just it should give you chills a little bit. <laughs> um, this is this is incredible. So what we're witnessing is a ceremony. Like chapters four and five are a ceremony of God's plan reaching the next step. So let's get into this. What is the scroll that's in God's right hand? Just put yourself in the room, and, and it's pretty obvious what it is, right? If you you're in the throne room of God, if there is a piece of paper. In the king's hand, when he is sitting on his throne in the middle of court, what would that be? It's going to be a royal decree. It's going to be something that he's going to edict. He's going to hand out. It is something that he wants done. It is a royal decree. Um, and so it's mentioned in, in 12.4 of chapter of Daniel. Like Daniel 12.4, the same scroll is mentioned there, that it is to be sealed until the end. And so what, what was it? What was the seal? If, you read, if you're familiar with Daniel, you know already. Spoiler alert. Um, but it's essentially, it's God's plans for justice, right? So the f- chapter 4 was the worshiping of God because he created. We exist because he chose it. Now, God is also the God of justice. He's going to make things right. That's the a big theme for the book of Revelation, is that despite your current situation, despite your suffering, despite the big question marks you have about this life and all of that, eventually God is going to make it right. That's that's one of the big things that Jesus is accomplishing through this book is that he's going to encourage us because God is going to make things right. And so this scroll is how God is going to make things right, how he's going to bring about justice to his creation, to set things right on earth as it is in heaven. To understand this, though, we need to do a little bit of background here because it's not just as simple as this is the plan, we're going to read it. It... There's a reason why only one being could open the scroll. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. When God created uh, humanity, when he created the earth, he committed to, to running the earth through humanity. Like that was, that was the task that we were created for. He told us uh, in chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, to tend the garden. We were created to be creative. To, to run creation. And God chose to, to work through us to run creation. Now, after Adam and Eve and things broke, there was there was separation between us, right? There, there was that gap. And we, we talk about that a lot. It's, it's kind of the core issue. That's what we have to be rescued from is this separation between us and God so we can get back to the work that God initially created us to do. And so the way God chose to do that was through creating covenants. Covenants are where you create family. That's, that's what a covenant is. It's like a contract, but on a lot higher stakes, because you're saying, hey, I need you to treat me like family, and I will treat you like family. Therefore, we're, we're basically blood. And so he creates these covenants, first with Noah, then with Abraham, and then with Moses, and, and then with David. And all of these covenants were designed to build a nation that would eventually rescue creation, the nation of Israel. God would, God, that, that would, but the problem was both humanity as a whole failed 
and Israel failed, right? God works through humanity. He still works through humanity. You know, we, we see that over and over throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, that the, the workings of nations, that, that's God's hand. Uh, not always in ways we understand, but God is still very much active in history. He participates in it, but he works through humanity. The good things, God works through humanity. The miracles, a lot of them are God working through humanity. But humanity has ultimately failed because of sin, and Israel itself failed. I mean, that's that's what Jesus ranted and raved about at the temple. When he flipped those tables, he was not upset that people were changing money. He was upset that Israel had turned the system designed to rescue humanity into a wall to keep humanity away from God. I mean, that, that was why he was so upset. Israel utterly and completely failed to rescue humanity. And so we see that it's, there's a very short list of beings that, that can open this scroll when God is committed to working through humanity. He has to be a human, and it has to be an Israelite, a true Israelite. Now, we're looking back at this 2,000 years later, and we're like, yeah, of course it was Jesus. Like, and in a sense, that's kind of what's happening. When the strong angel said, who can open the scroll, and John bursts into tears, the, the question was almost rhetorical, because remember, we're watching a ceremony. It's like, you know, at a wedding, when somebody's like, and who gives this woman to be married? We all know who it is. It's the guy, like, it's her dad walking down the aisle, or her grandpa, or whoever. Like, it's, it's that guy. But, like, we ask the question to elicit the answer we already know. That's essentially what's happening. But John's tears are genuine, because... He understands humanity's hopelessness. He understands their helplessness, that we cannot save ourselves. And he understands even Israel's helplessness, how much it messed up and truly failed to be the rescuers God wanted them and hoped for them to be. And so the question is asked, John's sitting there weeping, and one of these elders leans over and says, Hey, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root, the scion of David, he's going to do it. He's going to be able to open it. Now, for, for those of you who are new to Christianity, those are very Bible terms for the expected Messiah. Part of the covenants that God made with David would be that, that the King David, that he would, he would rescue. He would send a Messiah who would come and he would fight and destroy God's enemies, enemies of God's people, make things right, usher in God's golden age, and that he would be a descendant of David, that he would come from the tribe of Judah within the nation of Israel. So these are all really common sayings to refer to the expected Messiah. And they're all normally very like warrior king kind of terminology because that's that's what everybody expected. Um the, that's what I mean. That's what all the Israelites expected from the Messiah: him to be a warrior king type of person. Um, and so John hears, "Oh, this is the guy." He knows it's Jesus already. Like it's not like something shocking. And he hears he hears these these lion warrior king languages language describing him. And he looks over at the throne, and what does he see? He sees a lamb, not a lion. He sees a lamb, and not just. Like a nice-looking lamb, a lamb that has been slaughtered, the ultimate symbol of weakness and gentleness and defeat. A lamb is completely defenseless, and especially one that's already been slaughtered. And so, it, and on one hand, it seems like these two counteract. But if you don't understand this, this is this is a big 
issue within Christianity is that we a lot of us struggle to, to reconcile these two parts of Jesus. On the one hand, we love sentimentalism, right? You see the paintings and the pictures of Jesus, and he's like this like European guy with blonde hair, blue eyes, and he's petting a lamb, and it's like, oh, look how soft and safe he is. Hey, not so much. The, the Messiah was expected to fight God's enemies, to be a conquering king, to be dangerous, the lion. But the way that Christ did that was through the cross by using the own enemy's weapons and tactics against them, the lamb. He was the willing sacrifice to conquer. His full power was realized in his death. And Jesus is both fully dangerous, fully powerful, and the loving lamb the the, the 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 i don't want to say safe but he's he's you know he is he's he's the the hug and the slap you know the he is everything he is both the lion and the lamb i mean john also says he sees him with seven eyes and seven horns horns represent power within revelation you see something with horns that means they're powerful and so he has seven horns that's perfection that's god's number he's perfectly powerful he's all powerful and the eyes that's, it says that this, those are the seven spirits that go with others. This means he's all-seeing. So Jesus is all-powerful and all-seeing. He is dangerous. He is powerful. And, and, and to say he's just one or the other, that, hey, thank you, Jesus, for bringing me a salvation, but not being my king, like, that's, that's the contrast here. The king versus the savior. Jesus is both, and we have to accept that. But we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But the lamb walks up, and he takes the scroll. Jesus is the true Israelite. He is the one member of humanity, the one member of the nation of Israel who is fully capable of this. He's the only being capable of it because he has already brought salvation, and now that he takes the scroll, he's about to bring about justice. And that gets us to, to verse 8. So we're, we, that was all the very first section. Now we get to the, 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 the worship ceremony part 2, if you will, of chapters 4 and 5. And so the elders, when Jesus goes and he takes the scroll, the elders fall down on the face and they have um, harps and they have incense. Now, just a quick note, the incense is really significant for us because John tells us those are the prayers, our prayers, right? So our prayers show up in the throne room of heaven as sweet-smelling incense. That's, that's a big deal. Um, that, that shows that we're, we're, we're linked with the throne room of heaven. That we're not just like, hey, we hope our prayers get there. Like, no, here they are, <laughs> like... God hears them, he sees them, he smells them, he experiences them, he knows your prayers. There's never any disconnect between God and his people. And that's something that we, we need to be mentally cognizant of, that God very much has a connection with us. But anyway, so these elders, they fall down and they, they start singing songs. And so there's three songs that are sung here, and they give us big clues into who Jesus is and how we should think about him. So the first song is praise for what Jesus has done, that he has turned us, a bunch of hopeless rebels, as Tom Wright says, into servants, into priests, into a kingdom. That's what Christ has done through the cross. He has gathered and created a nation, a, a people, out of helplessness and hopelessness and out of failure. And this, this song echoes Daniel 7 too. So again, John loves the prophet Daniel and Isaiah, but he references Daniel a lot. The second song is the song of what Jesus deserves. So again, this combats that, that compartmentalism. That, that we can say this is our Christian life and this is our rest of our life. This is our work life, our home life, our family life, whatever you want to do. 
this song says Jesus deserves everything. He deserves all the riches, all the power, all the glory. He deserves all of you, your entire life, every part of it. It, it deserves to be given up to Jesus. So he deserves everything. So praise for what he's done is the first song. Um, praise that pray a song that praises that he is so deserving. And the last song is the song of all creation singing. This is the, the all of creation sings, whether they like it or not, <laughs> that, that Christ deserves to be praised. And this echoes Philippians 2 uh, verses 9 through 11. And so we see in chapters 4 and 5 the foundation for the rest of this book, right? So the, the first three chapters were kind of like setting up the narrative, right? And then chapters 4 and 5, we get to the actual narrative, the, the apocalypse, the something bigger, the bigger reality being revealed to us and to John. And we see that, that in this foundation that there is praise and worship constantly. Like we talked about last week, like, Praise and worshiping God, that is your core directive, right? That is like what you were made to do. The reason that missions exist, that missionaries go across the world, that people share the gospel, is because worship doesn't exist in people's hearts, in people in those places. And so one of the big takeaways that we can see here, and this is big, especially for people who say Jesus is not God, that praise and worship is, is for God alone. Nobody else is deserving, and yet Jesus is receiving it here. Jesus, and through John, is making a very clear statement that Jesus is God. That's a complicated subject to wrap your mind around. Um, but again, it kind of gets back to what we talked about, how we can't fully know God. There's so much more to him than we can truly comprehend. Um, we have to acknowledge the limits of our language. Jesus is God. He, is, he has no beginning or end. He just is. He is the I am along with the Father. How that works, it's a mystery. Um but he, he receives the praise that's exclusively for God. So John is making the statement, he is God. And the other thing that we can take away is that, that, that whole removing the sentimentalism, that, that Jesus is, is safe and the lamb-petting German guy. Like, no, like that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is both the love and the kindness and the grace and the mercy, but he is also the truth and justice and will make things right. And Christians have to have both. We cannot see him as one or the other. If you do that, you, you, it leads to very bad things. But we have to remember that Jesus is both. He is the lion and the lamb. He is our savior and our king. That we must submit to him because he is a powerful, dangerous king. He is God. But he is also love and mercy and kindness and grace. And the last thing that we see here is that the work of Christ is not for him alone. And what I mean by that is, is God has chosen to work through humanity. The rescue plan worked through the nation of Israel. I mean, ultimately, it succeeded in the person of Jesus. The nation as a whole failed, but through Christ, the one true Israelite appeared. God works through humanity, and so Jesus' plan to bring about justice, to bring about mercy and grace, that's us. God was working through us. Never discount that. Never discount that God has work for you to do, that you are part of being God's hands and feet to the world around you. If you have any questions, uh, reach out. Otherwise, see you next week.